You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Christ and the Human Soul. It's in four parts. This is the beginning of the third part, Christ and the Human Soul, and it's uh, the first lecture in that set, but I'm numbering it as Lecture 6. These are all translated by Agnes Schneeburg de Stur. This Lecture 6 was given in Norköping on July 12, 1914. Let me begin by extending a very warm welcome to you, our friends in Norköping, have expressed the wish that on this occasion I should speak about a topic pertaining to the being who, more than anything else, is so central to us in spiritual science, the Christ being. I have tried to comply with this wish by planning to speak about how the Christ being comes to life in the human soul and about the significance of this. And it is especially in the context of this theme that we shall have the opportunity to speak from the standpoint of spiritual science, about the meaning of Christianity and how it intimately involves and touches human beings. Let us consider the human soul. Speaking in the sense of spiritual science, we have a short word which, even if it does not embrace everything that the human soul signifies for us, nevertheless points to what for us as earthly human beings fills and permeates our soul nature to its farthest limits. We have the short word I, capital. Insofar as we are earthly beings, our I being reaches only as far as our soul nature. And in citing the name of this I being, we recall at the same time that with this I being we are referring to one of the four most immediate members that make up the human being. We speak, to begin with, of four members of the human being, the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the eye. There are a few things we need to recall in order to have a starting point for what we shall be considering in these lectures. We need to recall that we should not view the human physical body as though its laws, that is, the real essence contained in it, could be explained in terms of our present earthly surroundings. We know that if we want to understand the human physical body, we must go back to the three preceding incarnations of our Earth, the Saturn, Sun, and Moon phases of evolution. We know that in a remote primordial past, during the Saturn phase, the seed of the physical body was already brought into existence, that during the Sun phase, the seed of the etheric body was formed, and during the Moon phase, the seed of the astral body. Essentially, our earth evolution, in all its phases and in all its epochs, is what creates the possibility for the eye to achieve its fullest, broadest potential. We can say that just as the physical body had reached a significant stage of its evolution at the end of the Saturn phase, the etheric body at the end of the Sun phase, and the astral body at the end of the Moon phase, so will the eye have reached a significant point in its evolution at the end of the earth phase. 
We also know that our eye develops through three soul members, through the sentient soul, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul. Every realm, every field that is covered by these three soul members also stands in a certain relation to our eye. And it is these three soul members which in the course of our earth evolution first prepared for themselves the three external bodily members, the physical body, the etheric body, and the astral body, through long periods of the earth evolution. It is these three soul members which in successive post-Atlantean cultural epochs continued to develop in certain ways and will in future earth periods adapt themselves again to the astral, etheric, and physical bodies so that the earth can be prepared to pass over to the Jupiter evolution. If we take the term, quote, earth evolution of human beings, close quote, comprehensively enough, it would also be possible to speak of the, quote, soul evolution of human beings, close quote. It may be said that when the earth began, the soul element also began to stir in human beings, in keeping with the laws of evolution, that at first it began to work on the outer sheaths, then worked on itself, and is presently preparing itself to work again on the external sheaths, so that the groundwork can be laid for the Jupiter evolution. Now, we must keep before our mind's eye, EYE, what human beings are meant to become in their souls during the earth evolution. The human being must become what may be denoted by the word personality. This personality requires, to begin with, what may be called free will, but it needs at the same time the possibility of finding within itself the way to the divine in the world. On the one side, free will, the possibility of choosing between the beautiful and the ugly, the good and the evil, the true and the false, on the other side, laying hold of the divine in such a way that it penetrates our soul and that we know ourselves to be inwardly filled with it. Free will on the one side, knowing ourselves to be filled with the divine on the other side, these are the two goals of the soul evolution of human beings on the earth. Now, in order to support this human soul evolution in reaching these two goals, it has received two sacred gifts. One of these gifts is intended to establish forces in the human soul that lead to freedom, to the ability to distinguish between the true and the false, the beautiful and ugly, the good and bad. And another sacred gift had to be given to the human being during the earth evolution so that a seed could be planted in the human soul a seed that will empower the soul to feel the divine within itself, to feel united with it. The first sacred gift is what comes to meet us at the beginning of the Old Testament as the mighty picture of the temptation and the fall. The second sacred gift is what comes to us in everything that is encompassed in the term the mystery of Golgotha. And just as the temptation and the fall have something to do with what implanted freedom into the human being, 
that is, the gift of being able to distinguish between good and bad, beautiful and ugly, true and false. So, does the mystery of Golgotha have something to do with enabling the human soul to find the path to the divine again, and to know that the divine can flash up within it and can penetrate it? One could say that these sacred gifts include everything that is most important in the earth evolution, everything proceeding from the earth evolution that is connected with what the soul can experience in its deepest depths, what is intimately associated with the being and becoming of the human soul. To what extent is there a connection between what is indicated by these two sacred gifts and the being and becoming of the human soul? the inner experience of the human soul. I do not want to describe in an abstract way what I have to relate to you, and I would therefore like to begin with a very real concrete situation. I would like to start from a specific scene related to the mystery of Golgotha as it stands before our eyes in historical tradition and as it has been imprinted and should in fact become imprinted even more onto the hearts and souls of human beings. Let us assume for the moment that in Christ Jesus we have the being before us of whom we have often spoken in the course of our spiritual scientific contemplations. Let us assume that in Christ Jesus we have before our spiritual eyes that which must appear to us human beings as the most important factor in the whole universe. And then let us place in contrast to this perception and this feeling the shouting and the furious rage of the agitated multitudes in Jerusalem before the crucifixion at the time of the sentencing. Let us then place before our mind's eye the fact that the high court of Jerusalem thought it important, above all else, to question Christ Jesus about his deportment toward the divine and whether he claimed to be the Son of God. And let us thereby bear in mind that the high court considered such a claim to be the greatest blasphemy that Christ Jesus could have uttered. Let us further bear in mind that we have here an historical scene before us, a scene whereby the people cry out and clamor for the death of Christ Jesus. And now let us try to picture to ourselves what this shouting and this raging of the people signified historically. Let us ask the question, what should these people actually have recognized in Christ Jesus? They should have recognized in Christ Jesus the being who gives meaning and significance to life on earth. They should have recognized in Christ Jesus the being who had to accomplish a deed and that without this deed, earthly humanity would not be able to find the way back to the divine. The people should have understood that without this being, earthly humanity would have no meaning. Humanity would have to erase the word, in quotes, human being, from earth evolution, if it wanted to erase the Christ event. Now let us picture in our minds that this multitude condemned and raged against the being who actually causes human beings on earth to become human beings, who is meant to give the earth its purpose and meaning. 
what are the implications of this? It clearly implies that humanity had to come to a point in its development that can be illustrated by saying that those who, at that time in Jerusalem, were regarded as the representatives of the knowledge of the true nature of the human being, had actually lost this knowledge, that it had been obscured in them, that they did not know what the human being is, nor what humanity is meant to accomplish on the earth. What is depicted here implies nothing less than that humanity had reached a point where it had lost itself, where it condemned the very being that gives purpose and meaning to earth evolution. And what could really be heard in the cries of the agitated multitude were not words spoken out of wisdom, but words spoken out of folly. Quote, we do not wish to be human. We wish to cast away from us that which gives us continuing meaning as human beings. Close quote. When we reflect on all this, something else takes on a different perspective as well namely the way we understand the relationship of the human being to sin and guilt, in the sense of Pauline Christianity. Paul said that in the course of their development, human beings could fall into sin, which they themselves would not be able to wash away again, and that in order to make it possible for human beings to be cleansed of sin and guilt and of everything arising from sin and guilt, Christ had to come to the earth. That is Paul's view. And one could say that if this view needed any confirmation, then it certainly is there in the fury and clamoring of those who cried, Crucify him! For this cry implies that the people did not know the significance of their own existence on earth, that they did not know that it had been the aim of the earlier human development to spread darkness over the essential nature of the human being. And with this we have also come to what may be referred to as the preparatory mood of the human soul for the Christ being. This mood of preparation of the human soul consists in the following. Even though the soul may not be able to express it in words, it feels through what it is able to experience within itself, quote, Since the very beginning of the earth, I have developed in such a way that due to what I have within me, I cannot fulfill the aim of my evolution. Is there something that I can hold on to, something that I can take into myself so that I can reach my goal? Close quote. To sense that the true nature of the human being extends far beyond anything that the soul can achieve through its own strength on account of its evolution on the earth until now, that is the Christian mood of preparation. And when the soul finds that which it knows must necessarily be linked to its essential being, but which it lacks the power to find on its own strength, when the soul finds what actually bestows this power, then what it finds is the Christ. The soul then develops its connection with the Christ in such a way that it says to itself, quote, At the very beginning of the earth, a certain essential being had been preordained for me, which, however, in the course of earth evolution, has been darkened in me. 
and when I now look into this darkened soul, I lack the power to bring this true essential being to fulfillment. But I turn my spiritual gaze upon the Christ who gives me this power. This is what the human soul experiences. On the one hand it feels this way, and on the other hand it feels the approach of Christ and finds itself standing as though in a direct personal relationship to Him. The soul seeks Christ and knows that it would not be able to find Him if He were not to give Himself to humanity through human evolution, if He were not to approach humanity from beyond. There is a well-known Christian church father who did not shy away from speaking of the Greek philosophers, Heraclitus, Socrates, and Plato as, quote, Christians who lived before the founding of Christianity, close quote. Why does he do this? As we know, the doctrines professed today obscure much of what was at first an illuminating Christian teaching. It was indeed St. Augustine who said, quote, All religions contained elements of truth, and the element that is true in all religions is what is Christian in them, before there was a Christianity in name. St. Augustine was still permitted to say that. Nowadays one would be regarded a heretic if one were to say something similar within certain Christian settings. We shall most readily come to understand what this church father wished to convey in calling even the old Greek philosophers Christians if we try to put ourselves into the hearts and minds of those souls who in the first Christian centuries tried to establish a personal and cognitive relationship to the Christ. These souls did not think of Christ as having had no relation to the earth evolution before the mystery of Golgotha. Christ has always had something to do with the evolution of the earth. Through the mystery of Golgotha, however, his task, his mission, with respect to the earth evolution, has changed compared to earlier times. It is actually not Christian to only seek Christ in the evolution of the earth since the mystery of Golgotha. True Christians know that Christ has always been connected with the evolution of the earth. Let us now turn to the Jewish people. Did the Israelites know Christ? I am not asking whether the ancient Israelites knew the name of Christ or whether they were conscious of all the things I will be speaking about to you. I am asking whether those who really understand Christianity are justified in saying Judaism had Christ. Judaism knew Christ. It is certainly possible to have someone in one's midst and to see this person's external form without being able to recognize or characterize his essential being, because one is not aspired to know him. In the true Christian sense, ancient Judaism had Christ, only it did not recognize him in his true being. Is it Christian to speak in this way? It is Christian, as truly as it is Pauline. Where was Christ for ancient Judaism? It is said in the Old Testament that when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness, a pillar of cloud went before them by day and a pillar of fire by night. It is said that the Israelites passed through the sea, that the sea parted, 
so that they might pass through it, while behind them the Egyptians were drowned, for the sea closed in on them. It is also said that the Israelites murmured because they had no water, but that at the command of God Moses was able to go to a rock and strike it with his staff, and that water poured forth for the Israelites to drink. If we wanted to describe this scene of Moses guiding the ancient Israelites in a way that brings it to a level of human understanding, then we would say Moses led the Israelites while he himself was led by his God. Who was this God? Let us, to begin with, not answer this ourselves. We will let Paul answer the question, quote, Who was the God who led the Israelites through the desert? Close quote. In the first epistle to the Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, we read Paul's words. Quote, Moreover, brethren, I would not that all of you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud. Close quote. He means the pillars of cloud and of fire. Continue, quote, And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all drank the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Who was it then, according to Paul, who led the Israelites and who spoke with Moses? Who was it who caused water to flow out of the rock and who turned away the sea from the path of the Israelites? Only those attempting to declare that Paul was not a Christian would have reason to claim that it is unchristian to behold Christ in the guiding God of the Old Testament, in the Lord of Moses. There is a passage in the Old Testament which I think must present great difficulties for anyone aiming for a deeper understanding. It is a passage which anyone who does not read the Old Testament mindlessly, but rather wants to understand its deeper connections, would want to come back to again and again. And such a person might be wondering what this passage could possibly mean. The passage in question reads as follows, And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he struck the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, Because all of you believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore all of you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Numbers 20.11-12 Look at this passage in its context in the Old Testament. When the people murmured, the Lord commanded Moses to strike the rock with his staff. Moses strikes the rock with his staff, and water flows out. Everything that the Lord commanded is carried out by Moses and Aaron, and yet, shortly thereafter, we are told, the Lord reproves Moses, if indeed it is a reproof, for not having believed in him. What does this mean? Examine all the Bible interpretations of this passage and try to understand the passage with the help of what has been written in these commentaries. It is understood in the same way as most things in the Bible are understood. That is to say, really, not at all. For behind this passage a great mystery is hidden. What is hidden in this passage affirms 
that he who led Moses, he who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he who led the people through the wilderness and caused water to flow out of the rock, he was the Lord, Christ. But the time had not yet come. Moses himself did not recognize him. Moses mistook him for another. This is what is meant by Moses not having believed in the one who had commanded him to strike the rock with his staff. How did the Lord, Christ, appear to the Jewish people? We are told that it was, quote, in a pillar of cloud by day, close quote, and, quote, in a pillar of fire by night, close quote that it was by his dividing the waters for their deliverance, and through many other deeds we can read about in the Old Testament. It can indeed be said that he was active in the manifestations of cloud and fire, in the air, in the elemental events of nature, but that the ancient Israelites never realized that what appeared to them in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire, what worked miracles such as the parting of the waters, that this appears also in its purest archetypal form in the human soul. Why did the ancient Israelites not recognize this? Because as a consequence of the course taken by human evolution, the human soul had lost the power to feel its deepest essence within itself. Thus the Jewish soul was able to behold nature, it was able to let the glory of the elemental processes work upon it, it was able to divine the existence of its God and Lord in all these things. But directly, within its inner self, as it was constituted at that time, it could not find its God and Lord. We do indeed have Christ in the Old Testament. He was there working, but human beings did not recognize Him. How did the Christ work? Can we discover how He worked by consulting the Old Testament? The most significant thing Moses had to impart to his people through the mouth of Yahweh was the Ten Commandments. He received them out of the power of the elements. Yahweh spoke to him from out of this power. And Moses did not descend into the depths of his own soul. He did not ask in solitary contemplation, quote, How does God speak in my own heart? Close quote. Instead, he went up the mountain, and there, through the power of the elements, the will of the divine revealed itself to him. Will is, in fact, the fundamental nature of the Old Testament. This fundamental nature is often spoken of as the law, as the character of the law. Will works through the evolution of humanity and is expressed in the law, for example, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And it is will, his divine will, that God proclaims to humanity through the elements. Will holds sway in the evolution of the earth. This is, in fact, the significance of the Old Testament. And in the full sense of this significance, the Old Testament calls for human beings to submit to this will. If we hold before our souls what we have just been considering, then we can bring to everything together in these words. The will of the Lord was given to human beings but they did not perceive the Lord. They did not perceive the divine. They did not know the divine in such a way as to connect it with their own human souls. Now let us turn from the ancient Israelites to the heathens, the pagans. Did the pagans have Christ? 
Is it Christian to say that the pagans perhaps also had Christ? The pagans had their mystery centers. Those to be initiated in the mysteries were brought to the point where the soul left the body, where the tie connecting body and soul was loosened, and when the soul was outside the body in the spiritual world, it perceived the secrets of existence. Much was connected with these mysteries. Much varied knowledge arose in the candidates for initiation in the mysteries. But if we examine the highest that was attainable for pupils of the mysteries, then we find that the highest they could experience was to be placed before the Christ while they were outside their bodies. As Moses was placed before Christ, so was the pupil in the mysteries placed before Christ while his soul was outside his body. Christ was there for the pagans too, but for them he was there only within the mysteries. He revealed himself to them only when their souls were outside of their bodies. And even if the pagans did not recognize the Christ in this being any more than the Israelites did, this being of whom we have spoken, and before whom the pupils of the mysteries were placed, nevertheless, Christ was there for the pagans. One could say that mysteries were instituted for the pagans. Those who were suitable and mature were admitted into the mysteries. Christ worked upon the pagan world through these mysteries. Why did he work in this way? Because the soul of the human being in the course of its development, since the beginning of the earth, had lost the inherent power to find its true essential being through itself. This true being could only reveal itself to the human soul when it was unhampered by the bonds of its human nature, that is to say, when it was not bound to the body. For this reason Christ had to lead human beings through the fact that as initiates of the mysteries, they were as though stripped of their human nature. Christ was there for the pagans too. He guided them in the configuration of the mysteries. But it was never so that the human being could have said, quote, When I develop my own forces, I can find the meaning and purport of the earth. Close quote. This meaning was lost, obscured in darkness. The forces of the human soul had been pressed too far down into deep regions, too deep for the soul to have been able to find of itself, through its own powers, the meaning of the earth. If we allow ourselves to be receptive to that which was given to the pupils and the candidates for initiation in the pagan mysteries, then it proves to be wisdom. Will was given to the Israelites through the law. Wisdom was given to the pupils of the pagan mysteries. And if we consider what characterizes this pagan wisdom, would it not be possible to summarize it by saying that the ordinary earthly human being could not, through wisdom alone, recognize his God, but only by becoming a pupil of the mysteries, by leaving his body? The divine could not be revealed to human beings any more through wisdom than it could through will. Indeed, we find that there was an admonition that famously sounded all through Greek antiquity like a mighty appeal to humanity. But this admonition stood at the entrance to the sanctuary of Apollo. In other words, at the entrance to the mystery center, in the words, in quotes, 
Know thyself. What does it tell us that these words, Know thyself, stood at the entrance to the sanctuary like a summons to humanity? It tells us that in the external world, where the human being remains what he has become ever since the beginning of the earth, there is nowhere where he can fulfill the supplication, Know thyself. It tells us that as a human being he must become something else, must develop beyond that level, that in the mysteries he must loosen the ties that bind the soul to the body so that he can know himself. These words standing like a powerful admonition at the sanctuary of Apollo point at the same time to the circumstance that darkness had fallen upon humanity. In other words, that God could not be reached through wisdom any more than he could reveal himself directly as will. And just as the individual human soul feels that it cannot muster within itself the forces that can unveil the meaning of the earth to it, so do we see the human soul in the time of the Israelites at a stage where even Moses himself, the leader of the Israelites, did not recognize who was leading him. Among the pagans we see that the admonition, Know thyself, could be fulfilled only in the mysteries, because the human being, as he had developed with respect to the cohesion of body and soul in the course of earth evolution, was unable to unfold the power through which he could know himself. Quote, it is not through will, and neither is it through wisdom, that God can be known. Close quote. These are the words that resound to us from those times. Through what, then, must God be known? We have often characterized the essential nature of that special point in time when Christ entered into the evolution of earthly humanity. Let us now take a very precise look at what is meant by the statement that a certain darkening of the human soul had set in, that the true divine could be revealed neither through will nor through wisdom. What is the real meaning of this? Indeed, people speak of many different relationships between the human and the divine. When they speak of the relationship between the human and the divine and of the significance of the human within the divine, they often speak in such a way that it is impossible to distinguish how the human relates to the divine or how, for example, any other earthly thing relates to the divine. We find that even today philosophers still endeavor to rise to the divine through pure philosophy. However, through pure philosophy one cannot rise to the divine. Certainly, we can come to know through pure philosophy that the divine holds sway in the world. We can come to feel that we are connected to the universe. And certainly we come to know that the human being must, in some way or other, be connected with the universe at death. But how we are connected with the universe, this we cannot come to know through pure philosophy. Why not? If you take the full significance of what we have considered today, then you will be able to recognize that what is initially disclosed to the soul of the earthly human being between birth and death is too weak with respect to its forces to perceive anything that transcends the earthly, anything that leads to the divine spiritual. In order to make this quite clear to ourselves, let us investigate the meaning of immortality. 
Today, many people no longer have any knowledge of the real meaning of human immortality. Many people speak of immortality today even when they can do no more than acknowledge that the human soul, with its essential being, passes through the gate of death and then finds some place or other in the universe, in the all. But this is something that every being does. The element that unites with a crystal passes over into the universe when the crystal is dissolved. A plant that fades away passes over into the universe. An animal that dies passes over into the universe. But for the human being, it is different. Immortality has meaning for human beings only if they can uphold their consciousness beyond the gate of death. Picture an immortal human soul that is unconscious after death. Such immortality would have no meaning, absolutely no meaning at all. The human soul must carry its consciousness through death if it wants to speak of its immortality. Because of the way in which the soul is united with the body, it cannot find anything within itself of which it could say, quote, here is something that I carry consciously through death, close quote. For human consciousness is enclosed between birth and death. It reaches only as far as death. Consciousness, as it incipiently belongs to the human soul, extends only as far as death. Into this consciousness shines the divine will, for example, in the Ten Commandments. Read the book of Job and try to evaluate whether this illumination could have brought a human being to the point where his consciousness would have been stimulated enough to awaken the kind of inner forces that would have enabled him to say to himself, quote, I pass as a conscious being through the gate of death. Close quote. Oh, how these words touch us, the words that were spoken to Job, Job 2.9, Renounce God and die. Close quote. We know that he was not certain at all whether he would pass with consciousness through the gate of death. And now place beside this the Greek statement that expresses the dread felt by the Greeks in the face of death, quote, better a beggar in the upper world than a king in the realm of the shades, close quote. Here we have also from the pagan side more confirmation of how uncertain people had become regarding human immortality and how uncertain are many people even today. All those who say that the human being, after going through the gate of death, passes into the all and is united with some universal being or other, do not take into consideration what the soul really ought to ascribe to itself if it is to speak of its immortality. We need only mention one word and we shall be able to recognize how human beings ought to view their immortality. It is the word love. We can now bring everything that has been said with respect to the word immortality into connection with what is meant by the word love. Anything that we acquire for ourselves through will is not love. Anything that we acquire for ourselves through wisdom is not love. Love dwells in the realm of feelings, but we know and must acknowledge to ourselves that the human soul would fall short of its true nature if it could not be filled with love. Indeed, if we penetrate into the nature of the soul 
then we come to realize that our human soul would no longer be a human soul if it could not love. But now let us imagine for a moment that on passing through the gate of death we were to lose our human individuality and were to be united with some universal divineness. We would then be within this divineness. We would belong to it. We would no longer be able to love God because we would be within this God. Love would have no meaning if we were within the Godhead. We will have to admit that if we could not carry our individuality through death, we would have to lose love in death. That love would have to cease as soon as our individuality ceased to be. One being can only love another if it is separate from that other being. If we are to carry our love of God through death, then we must carry our individuality through death. Then we must carry through death that which kindles love within us. In order for the meaning of the earth to be brought to human beings, they had to be given knowledge of human immortality, but it had to be given in such a way that they would think of the essential nature of the human being as being inseparable from love. Neither will nor wisdom can give human beings what they need. Only love can give human beings what they need. What was it then that became darkened in the course of human evolution on earth? Take the Israelites or the pagans, and we can see that for them consciousness beyond death had become obscured. Between birth and death there was consciousness. Beyond death and birth there was darkness. And nothing remained of the consciousness of the earthly body. Know thyself stood at the entrance to the Greek sanctuary as a sacred appeal of the Greek mysteries to humanity. And the human being was only able to answer, quote, Indeed, if I remain bound to my body with my soul, as is the case in earthly human beings, then I cannot identify in myself an individuality who could love beyond death. I cannot do it. Close quote. The knowledge that one can love as an individuality beyond death, this is what had been lost for human beings. Death is not merely the cessation of the physical body. Only a materialist can say that. Suppose for a moment that our consciousness was such that in every hour of life, within our bodies, we would know what lies beyond death, as assuredly, as we know today that the sun will rise tomorrow to take its journey across the heavens. In that case, death would have no sting for human beings. Death would not be what we now call death. We would know, while living in our bodies, that death is only a phenomenon leading from one form to another. For Paul, too, death did not mean the cessation of the physical body, but rather the fact that consciousness extends only as far as death, and that human beings, insofar as they are united with their bodies during life on earth, are only able, while in their bodies, to extend their consciousness as far as death. Wherever Paul speaks of death, we could add, quote, lack of consciousness beyond death, close quote. What did the mystery of Golgotha give to humanity? Was it a series of natural phenomena, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire that stood before humanity with the mystery of Golgotha, 
No. A human being stood before humanity. Christ Jesus. Was something fulfilled with the mystery of Golgotha that would have drawn on the mysterious realms of nature so that a sea divided and the people of God could go through? No. A human being stood before humanity. A human being who caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. These things came from a human being. The Israelites had to look into nature when they wished to see the one whom they called their divine Lord. Now there was a human being, and people could see him and could say of him that God dwelt in him. The pagans had to be initiated. Their souls needed to be withdrawn from their bodies so that they might stand before the being who is the Christ. They had been unable to divine the Christ on earth. They could know only that the Christ was outside the earth. But the one who had been outside the earth had come down to earth and taken on a human body. In Christ Jesus, a being stood as a human being before humanity, a being who once in the mysteries had stood before the soul when it was freed from the body. And what came to pass as a consequence of this? It was the start of a course of action whereby the powers that human beings had increasingly lost since the beginning of earth evolution, powers that safeguarded immortality for human beings, were to be restored to humanity through the mystery of Golgotha. In the overcoming of death on Golgotha lies the origin of the forces that can rekindle in the human soul the powers that had been lost. And from now on, humanity's path through earth evolution will be such that inasmuch as human beings gradually take the Christ into themselves, they will discover the inner power that is capable of love beyond death. In other words, that the human being will be able to stand before God as an immortal individuality. Therefore, it is only since the mystery of Golgotha that the saying has become true, quote, Love God above all and your neighbor as yourself, close quote, Luke 10.27. Will was given from out of the burning bush. Will was given through the Ten Commandments. Wisdom was given through the mysteries. But love was given when God became human in Christ Jesus. And the guarantee that we can love beyond death, that through the powers restored in our soul a community of love can be founded between God and humanity, as well as between all human beings among one another, this guarantee proceeds from the mystery of Golgotha. In the mystery of Golgotha, the human soul has found what it had gradually lost since the primal beginning of the earth, inasmuch as its forces had become ever weaker and weaker. Three forces in three human soul members, will, wisdom, love. In this love, the soul experiences its relation to Christ. I wanted to put these things before you from a certain perspective. Whatever may have seemed aphoristic in the explanations given today will find its context in the next few days. But I believe that we can inscribe deeply into our souls that progress in the knowledge of Christ is a real gain for the human soul and that when we consider the relationship of the human soul to Christ, 
it again becomes clear to us how before the mystery of Golgotha there was a veil, as it were, between the human soul and Christ, how this veil was broken through by the mystery of Golgotha, and how we can be justified in saying through the mystery of Golgotha a cosmic being streamed into earth life, an extra earthly being united himself with the earth. I hope you will allow me at this point to make some other remarks. The accusations made against spiritual science are becoming stronger and stronger and are often lacking in truth. Just recently we have heard it said again that it is unchristian to claim that in Christ a cosmic being became an earthly being, that, quote, this anthroposophical doctrine does not realize how unchristian it is to speak of a cosmic being, while the important thing, surely, is that human beings gained something from the human element of Jesus, as the Gospels describe it. Close quote. Such people who believe they are upholding Christianity against spiritual science think that it is unchristian to speak of a Christ whose significance as a cosmic being is said to extend beyond the earthly realm to the cosmos. We also heard it said that, quote, Christ as we see him, that is, without considering all these cosmic aspects, will live in human souls as long as the earth exists. Close quote. People don't seem to realize how, in quotes, unevangelical this standpoint is. But this is how people oppose and in fact condemn spiritual science. Our anthroposophy, or rather our anthroposophical Christianity, is thought to be unchristian. But do those who are so ready to attack us really have an understanding of Christianity? For a truly Christian soul would never say, quote, as long as the earth exists, Christ will be in human hearts, close quote. Why not? Because such a person would have forgotten the words in the gospel, quote, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, close quote. Luke 21.33, Matthew 24.35. With these very words, Christ stands before us as a cosmic being. And anyone who makes these words come true speaks as a Christian. But those who say, quote, we want a Christ who works as long as the earth exists, close quote, do not understand the true Christianity, which is not only written in books, but also in the stars. It is necessary from time to time to make ourselves aware of the spirit of the attacks leveled against anthroposophy and its understanding of Christianity. What the human soul can experience in itself with its Christ, this we shall then speak of in the following lectures during the next few days. The end of Lecture 6, the first lecture in this section, Christ and the Human Soul.